0: Hi, I'm Chloe Ward. And I'm Emma Shortis. And welcome to the Barely Getting By podcast. So this is part two of our deep dive into a comparison between fascism and especially Nazism in Europe in the 1920s and 1930s and the phenomenon of Trumpism in the USA. So our last episode, part one of this series, ended with Emma positing, you know, a kind of a wonderful historical counterfactual <laughs> where Al Gore was permitted to win the 2000 the two thousand US election. Um, America embarked on a radical and far-reaching scheme to combat climate change. That's right. And we weren't facing the decline of democracy and the decline of democratic institutions. Imagine, what a world. What a world. So I'm going to pick that up. And fast forward to 2016. So this is picking up on the point Emma made about how there is a common fallacy in commentators thinking that American institutions are uniquely strong and are set up to preserve and to promote democracy. So in 2016, when Trump first came to power, we heard a lot, there was a lot of reassurance coming from pundits and especially in the mainstream liberal media who said that American institutions? So I think we're talking about we're talking about Congress, we're talking about the Senate, we're talking about the Supreme Court. They were uniquely strong, and they were actual, and they would protect us from the worst that Donald Trump planned. But what we're seeing is that they're they're actually very weak. I think that is
1: absolutely true, and and Trump is is manipulating that in a masterful way. Even if it's not kind of a, a grand strategy on his part, the most obvious way being is that he's appointed Supreme Court judges, which of course he is he is um, he has the power to do and has used that power, and it actually explains a lot of his support amongst a kind of evangelical base, where he's stacking the Supreme Court with conservatives, and it and it. It certainly seems possible to me that should there be a contested election in 2020, which again is very likely, given what we've just said about the history of the American electoral system and and the way that elections work, if another election goes to – is legally contested and it goes to the Supreme Court, there's no doubt in my mind that the Supreme Court rules in his favour because he is placing these conservative judges in there partly for that reason – so there's that. But, you know, I think certainly some legal scholars would make the argument that that's the institutions working, you know, that's the Supreme Court doing its job, being being the arbiter. And, of course, it's, it's not perfect. It's a political body and it's doing its job and ensuring the stability of the American political system, right, which is the argument that people made at the time in 2000. It's the reason Al Gore decided to kind of step away and not contest in order to ensure the stability of the system. Trump's not going to do that. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Trump's not going to Trump's not going to just kind of gracefully go, oh, well, okay, you know, I'll leave office. And I think so much of the coverage is is framed in this kind of if Trump wins 2020 or if he loses 2020. And and for my mind, Trump is already setting up this narrative about the weakness of American democracy and how easy it is to steal elections in order to lay the groundwork for not leaving, whether he loses or
0: not. Yeah. And I think I think what he's also done really effectively is set up a whole bunch of conspiracy theories that he's going to be able to put into service should he, if he is to lose that that election in 2020, that will keep his base behind him. Is that right? Absolutely.
1: I think so. I think Trump's been really effective at, at deploying conspiracy theories. It's the reason he came to political prominence was peddling a conspiracy theory about Obama not being eligible to be president because he wasn't born in the United States, which of course is also deeply racist. But Trump is absolutely immersed in these conspiracy theories and has used them in order to maintain or get to and
0: maintain his power. Yeah. And this is one of those places where I think we can see a really clear and undeniable comparison with the rise of nazism in Germany and so in after the end of the first world war there was a conspiracy theory that spread throughout the throughout the right in Germany about how that the end of the war came about and that's it's known as the as the stab in the back myth. So basically it went that germany didn't actually lose the war its the victory in the war was basically traded away by the republicans who then assumed power in the weimar democracy that oh, okay. yeah that that came about after the, after the end of the war this rumor had incredible power and it was something that was used like openly and it was one of the it became one of the sort of founding myths of the of the Nazi Party and its claims on the state was that which that the true Germany had been betrayed by Republicans, therefore the therefore the Weimar Republic was illegitimate. So wow. we saw in the 1920s and the early 1930s the promulgation of a of a conspiracy theory to incredible political effect, as both a, a tool of delegitimizing the democratic state and also as a way of, of legitimizing this far right, you know, these far-right insurgents.
1: Wow, that that is amazing, and I think you know we can see very clear pal- parallels with the use of history by the alt right in the United States today, and and you know the United States versions of the culture and history wars in their own experience of war, which is one that I think maybe not many people in Australia would be aware, of, but about that there's this kind of cultural war, history war going on about the Civil War in the United States, and the the fact that the can the Confederate army, so the, the secessionists from the United States, who were essentially fighting a war in order to maintain the institution of, of slavery, that there's this kind of history war going on that suggests, no, no, it wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights, and actually the Confederates, the Southerners, were the true patriots and and that argument has been prosecuted really really effectively so you have trump talking about civil war generals from the south as as great generals as wonderful people and and i guess well huge rallies that are that are motivated by a desire of white the desire of white people to to keep up monuments to the civil war to keep up monuments to the civil to civil war generals and the upholders of slavery so it is it is actually extraordinary when you say that about the kind of conspiracy around the end of the first world war and the parallels there i think in the use of history and again i guess that cult of that idea of cult of tradition
0: yeah absolutely and i think also again i keep and i keep coming back to this the audacity of the right yeah. And also just the willingness to not operate by by the rules, or you know, by by the yeah. informal rules and the etiquette of liberal democracy. Yeah, it's
1: it's funny. It's kind of an aside, but it's it's really striking to me when you use that word audacity because that I always associate audacity with Obama because of course his political sort of his his second book that was marked his kind of rise to political prominence is the audacity of hope.
0: Right. So. <laughs> So we've gone from the audacity of hope and I don't know I mean maybe hope that wasn't realized yeah yeah by the Obama presidency and now that audacity is finding a different home in politics. Yeah it it sure is. Speaking of audacious and this might be a little bit flippant Trump's pretty audacious in the way he presents himself isn't he? Oh my gosh yeah he is. He <laughs>
1: One of the things that we we talk we talk about is the kind of symbolism that that is used behind this kind of um, I guess, new fascism and, and the rise of the alt-right. And Trump has been really effective at, at that kind of mar- marketing of those that symbolism, the obvious thing being the, you know, the red Make America Great Again hats and that kind of thing. But it's also the way that he presents himself and it, it is that kind of Obama backlash. So one of Trump's big things is about draining the swamp, that he's the kind of knight in shining armour who'll come in and clean everything up. And people have bought into this in amazing ways. So I don't know if you've seen... I I can't remember his name, and I actually probably don't even want to spread it, so it's fine. But the, Trump has this kind I think of like. We might have to. Yeah, I think we, we have
0: do. to give credits.
1: Don't we probably we? do. I don't. I actually have no idea who this guy's name is. Sorry, we'll put yell, we'll
0: put it on the in the show notes. That's a that's a better idea. We'll relegate so, it to the show notes at the very bottom <laughs> of the list. <laughs> but he's this kind of um, self
1: self appointed portrait in residence, portraitist in residence for Trump. So he, he, he does these paintings of, of Trump, like one of them is Trump like cradling the American flag. But my favourite is the, is the Drain the Swamp painting. Okay. Okay. You can paint me a picture. Paint me a word picture. <laughs> so, so this painting, right, is Trump in Washington, which is rendered as a, as a swamp, like so, kind of murky and grey and green and foggy and dark. Okay, so this is extremely literal. Yes, yeah, it is. It is a very literal interpretation of DC as an actual swamp, and Trump is in a boat with important members of his administration around him. So he's he's standing up with his foot on the prow. Is that what you call it? I don't, I'm not a boating person, but he's got his like foot kind of you know. In I'm very, not a boat. A boat very manly I'm not rich boaters. enough to be a boat person. No, I wish we were rich enough. Uh, no, I don't like boats. Anyway, so he's standing with his. foot... Foot kind of on the prow, and he's holding up a lantern, right, to 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 see a way through the through the swamp. And his kind of foot soldiers, like John Bolton, who's his national security advisor, is holding a shotgun, like cocked and ready. And he's surrounded by by these kind of uh, minions, I guess. But he's the he's standing up, and he's and he's always extremely tall and he, and extremely kind of lean and muscly, and his hair's luscious and and. Trump loves these paintings like I don't know I'm not sure about the swamp one, but he's definitely got another one that this guy did with um, Trump sitting around with all everybody's favorite presidents having a drink. Um, Trump's having a diet Coke of course because he's a, he's a teetotaler. But this imagery is amazing and people really buy into it as Trump as Trump is this kind of I guess hyper masculine
0: savior figure.
1: Okay. It's right. intense.
0: Yeah, it sounds it sounds horrific. I guess okay, so I think if we're going to compare that to what we saw under fascism, then one thing I would say and is that and I have to be really careful about how I put this, but so the the great, you know, the most compelling works of art that were produced under fascism, so I'm talking about things like Lenny Riefenstahl's films mm-hmm. were technically extremely proficient and they are they were and are compelling. So there was a degree of skill associated with them that I don't think quite tallies with what you're describing, which is (laughs) that was a very diplomatic way of putting it. Yeah, pretty amateurish. Um, But also, if you're talking about the positioning of the of the fascist leader as this sort of extremely, I guess, masculine figurehead, then absolutely, I would say that that aligns with something that we do associate with fascism, which is this intense machismo. So it is definitely a very male dominated, a very male oriented, traditionalist ideology. So I can see the parallel there, but I'm not sure that this yeah, I'm not sure that this guy would quite cut the, <laughs> cut the mustard. Um, but
1: I mean I think we you know, we as hilarious it is, as it is, and I'm the first to say it's hilarious, we kind of dismiss it as our peril because it at our peril, because it certainly has traction. But I think I think there's also a lot in this kind of hyper masculinist ideal. Because a lot of like it, I think it's really um you know, people might might have noticed there's often a lot of confusion around how in particular The evangelical voting base can support Trump because this base has a huge amount of electoral power, which is why Republicans chase this base. But there's this kind of confusion about how a religious, um, a group of religious voters, can support a president who you know is a serial adulterer who's been accused of uh, you know rape and sexual assault by by multiple women credibly. He's been married three times, etc, etc, etc. Children by multiple women. How do evangelicals? support this right how do they support this kind of man and and you have this kind of like for want of a better word sanctimonious conversation around how obama's a genuine family man you know he never had a single scandal like how can people be so hypocritical but i think it is it is absolutely this kind of hyper masculine or this i guess yearning for a return to the to male dominance and a and a hyper masculine reality where and and that's where this kind of contradiction or seeming contradiction comes in but actually that evangelical support base is quite happy for men to treat women terribly like that's that's part yeah. of the kind of working assumption
0: yeah and and i agree and i i think that there's definitely i mean there's absolutely a parallel with the machismo that should be associated that is associated rightly with fascism but again i don't know that the comparison really stands up because yeah. quite frankly i think liberal democracy like, I mean, fascism doesn't own the patriarchy. <laughs> no, I mean, and if you go back to the really credible accusations of rape against the sitting president of the of the United States of America, we still see the liberal media treating those in an incredibly circumspect and quite cowardly way. Absolutely. So I don't know. I don't know that we can we can pin the sexism yeah. of Trumpism and the sexism of of Trump's followers. To this, you know, yes, neo-fascist ideology. I think it is. It is something that is society-wide. I, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think where maybe we might be able to make a better comparison is if we look at the way that Trumpism and the alt-right, that how the, the machismo on the alt-right has manifested itself in violence, because okay. that is a very it's it's fascist movements do it glorify violence. So they see, you know, they see the world as, as as an endless struggle. They live, they live and die by war. Like they they live in a state of permanent struggle. There's you know there's a reason why Hitler's Hitler's book was called Mein Kampf, which means my struggle. And I think this is something we've absolutely seen brought to life in the what seems like the never ending occurrence of mass shootings in the U.S., which are more and more being perpetrated by men who closely identify with the right and with Trump.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, um, um, both both the Dayton and El Paso shooters identified Trump directly as an inspiration for what they were doing. Um, it happened in Christchurch as well, where where these men, overwhelmingly white men, are emboldened by the alt right. They're deeply embedded in international alt right networks. Which, which are connected, you know, we've, we've talked about Jordan Peterson, connected to this kind of intellectual edifice, but also to this much more sinister glorification of violence and, and a kind of insistence that violent struggle is the way forward and, and that is the only way to defend Trump and Trumpism in the United States and that's with violence and, and using words like invasion. And I think to go back to our earlier conversation you know basically 100% of the time these men have also perpetrated violence against women against their partners and against their family members and maybe that's where the comparison lies
0: yeah and i think it also you can go you, i think we can probably also go a bit further with that if we talk about the way that the internet facilitates the development of these alt right movements so i spoke before about how how the how the alt right today how it um i guess creates a level of plausible deniability for itself by being on the one hand by claiming on the one hand to be extremely rational, but on the other sort of resting on this lay- these layers of obfuscation. And I think that's very clear if we look at the sorts of at this, at the online discourse that is making, that's making recruitment to these movements possible. So if you look at what I guess in its more innocent form is called the intellectual dark web or if you look at these, you know, these forums that are being used to recruit people to the alt-right, they'll often be using the imagery of fascism and especially Nazism, but they'll be using it in a way that is kind of teasingly ironic and that sort of is like they basically draw people in, they draw vulnerable young white men in through jokes and then they stay for the ideology and for the promises that it's offering. So one, what we see is people using, the, they, they use the language and they use the motifs of fascism to draw people in, um, but they also use them in such a way that they can say, hey, it was just a joke.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Which we see Trump do all the time, hey. Like he said, you know, in in one of his more extraordinary moments where he was talking about the trade war with China and he... Um, looks up to, at the sky and holds his arms open and says, I am the chosen one. And and people are kind of going, oh, my goodness, like this is escalating quite quickly. And then he turns around and says, oh, no, no, like obviously I was being sarcastic, obviously that was a joke. But from what I understand in, this, in his kind of alt-right following, it's there's this kind of sense of it being an in-joke that, you know, Trump says he's joking about these things but we all know – that he he really he really means it, and and I guess the, you know the the rusted on base is supportive of that
0: idea. Yeah, and I think that, and there are absolutely and there are moments when the, when it becomes apparent what it really means, and I'm and I'm talking about things like the Dayton and El Paso shootings yep. and the Christchurch shooting, where they I guess these layers of obfuscation and irony fall away, and you see that actually they are deadly serious. Yep. And, I mean, they are literally deadly serious. And I think it's the reason I'm really glad that we ha- we've had this discussion today is because I think it is important for us as critics and as people who, you know, who want to prevent the horrors of the past being repeated it's important that we look at what people are actually doing yep. and not necessarily at what they're saying and i think that that's where there have been a lot of mistakes if, from in these in these comparisons between trumpism and nazism and fascism in that they've looked to they've looked too closely at the record of what people are saying of what the right is saying and not looking at what they're doing and i think from what we've discussed it looks more and more like if not in its words and in its deeds, what we're seeing in America is definitely an emergent fascism. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I would. I absolutely would. And and I think that's that. What you're saying about kind of looking at words and deeds comes out for me when you talk about something like gun control to go to go back to mass shootings. So so Trump, you know, comes out after a mass shooting and says he's looking at gun control measures. He's said this before, and then of course he doesn't. But because Trump has and Republicans have kind of set themselves up as guardians of the Constitution, and this idea of Second Amendment rights, you know, this is held up as a kind of holy grail of I, I guess the American political system, and trump is as the guardian of that. But then what he's also doing is is actively derailing that. So he's now he's fairly recently, again, raised the prospect of changing the constitution by executive order. So taking out birthright citizenship, which is enshrined in the constitution, by executive order, which he can't do, like legally he can't do it. But his actions increasingly suggest to us that he would be willing to do it anyway. Right? So he's actively undermining the kind of bedrock, I guess, of the American political system and American democracy and that again is where I think you're absolutely right that that's what's being missed because I guess a liberal meter especially can't quite make that leap to understanding that this is possible and this is what he might be doing because he's couching it you know he'll he'll often turn turn around and say oh no no I was I was joking I'm not I'm not really going to do that but his supporters will kind of Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We know that this is what he's going to do, and and we are kind of the guardians of of Western civilization, of of a white American society, and therefore are willing to kind of take these steps and to allow Trump to take these steps. And
0: that is absolutely, I think, what's being missed. So, so I guess having come to this very bleak conclusion <laughs> that we can definitely see fascism on the rise in Trump's America. I guess one thing we can do is be watchful for it, and I think yep. that's absolutely something that liberals need to take more notice of. What do you think can be done to prevent fascism from not from not merely rising through these these alt-right movements and within the presidency, but how can we stop it taking power and turning America into a fascist state? That is something I never, ever thought I would say in my lifetime but here I am. I never thought I'd have to try and answer it to be honest. Like because my my
1: immediate reaction is just burn it all down basically. <laughs> is is you know we we've spoken about the the weakness of American democracy and American institutions and how easily they are to easy they are to manipulate. So I guess you know, the first step is to, is to actually recognise what's happening, to recognise that you have a president who who is actively talking about overruling the constitution by executive order, which is extraordinary and terrifying, and you cannot dismiss the possibility of that, or that he will get away with doing that, that, that people who've set themselves up as the guardians of the constitution are now his supporters, and they are perfectly happy for him to completely undermine those institutions. So there's recognising that, and then I think there's grappling with how to, essentially how to fix those institutions and i think part of the way that you do that is is by doing things like abolishing the electoral college so getting rid of the extraordinary amount of power that that some states have over who is elected president and avoiding this situation that we've had in 2016 and previously where a president who's lost the popular vote has still been elected which is what's happened with trump i think again that that I guess, leads us into abolishing the Electoral College is reforming the Constitution. It's dealing with things like the Second Amendment in terms of gun control. And then more broadly for progressives, I think it's, well, firstly, not nominating Joe Biden. Okay. That's not going to help. Right. I'll, I'll,
0: I'll, go t- I'll go tell the, America, the Democratic Party <laughs> yeah, don't that's nominate right. Biden. Don't do that. Yeah, okay. Who, um, but who should they
1: nominate? Well, I mean, that's a good question. And my I, w- I would say that it it needs to be a progressive who, who recognizes the genuine threats to American democracy. And I think probably that's Elizabeth Warren for mine, you know, and I, I, even a few months ago, I wouldn't have said, I wouldn't have said that, but I think that, you know, she has been willing to, to basically call it what it is, to call Trump a white supremacist, which of course lots of people have been doing since then but Democrats haven't been doing and they are because of people like Elizabeth Warren I think increasingly willing to do it. So it's it's reforming the Democratic Party with those kind of progressive voices with young Democrats and not focusing on winning back these
0: mythical Trump supporters. Because I think one of the lessons we can absolutely take is from history is that... Once people are lost to the far right, it's very hard to win them back. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, Elizabeth Warren was one of the first the first figures in the Democratic Party to come out in favour of impeachment and impeachment proceedings are now underway. Does this possibility, does that change things for Trump? Does that change your perspective on the rise of this proto-fascism that we're seeing in the US? Oh, look, it's a really good question and I think
1: I'd, I'd probably hedge and say... I'm not quite sure yet because impeachment I mean we we've talked about this in a previous episode previous episode impeachment is is massive and it's a radical step and I think it has been kind of framed as you know institutions reasserting themselves in terms of you know dealing with Trump and and trying to deal with his erosion of norms and I think that that's probably partly true you know this is a system kind of u- using its option of last resort in, in order to try and combat this kind of erosion but whether that works or not I think is another question because impeachment is inherently a political process and even if Trump is impeached by the House that doesn't actually change anything you know he doesn't have to he doesn't have to go anywhere he doesn't have to leave it, m- it m- may well change things politically of course but but in terms of Trump staying in office um, you know he's he's still there and of, of course the, you know there's then I think the other side of that question, which we've talked about earlier in, in this discussion broadly about fascism, is is the conversation in the mainstream media is kind of about whether Trump will be impeached and then um, removed from office by the Senate. But again, that, that conversation is kind of predicated on he either is removed from office or he isn't and he stays. But I'm not sure it's that simple because Trump is already employing all of the techniques we've already talked about when it comes to impeachment in terms of that kind of neo-fascist approach. So, you know, so much misinformation about the Bidens and these ridiculous conspiracy theories, um, which of course is a tried and true tactic. Um, He's also discrediting the process entirely. So you even see pundits on Fox News, you know, the the state kind of propaganda arm that that Trump is using talking about getting the president to change the constitution so impeachment is not possible. So again, we have this kind of undermining of the rule of law and democratic institutions. So so I think it's certainly possible that impeachment may change things, but I think it's subject to to many of the same risks that we've talked about in these last two episodes. So Thanks for putting
0: up with us for two episodes (laughs) as we dug deep and looked at fascism. I'm afraid we're not actually going to move very far from this topic in the next episode of the Barely Getting By podcast. However, we are, instead of talking about fascism, we're going to be talking about books and we're going to be talking about an anti-fascist, one anti-fascist in particular. Possibly one of the most famous anti-fascists ever. I wrote 10,000 words of my PhD thesis about him. We're going to be talking about George Orwell. So please stick around. We're going to be looking at George Orwell's views of his present and our future. And we're also going to be talking about books and whether whether, whether books about politics reflect our times and, more importantly, whether they can change our times. So we hope you'll tune in to the next episode of Barely Getting By.
1: Thanks for listening. Chloe and I would like to thank RMIT University who have produced the Barely Getting By podcast.